Well, here we are back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 6. And it starts with a phrase that means we have to back up a bit. There we are. If you point these things out, this is Paul writing to Timothy, his young son in the faith, his protege, uh, who he looked upon to be his replacement, actually, when that time would come. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and in the good teaching that you have followed. Well, that's a pretty big statement. And if true, and of course it is, then it's probably important to remember what these things are. And the two verses ahead were the verses that kill the moralist, that give us joy. Moralists take away the joy. God gives us joy for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is concentrated by the word of God in prayer. So the people that go through your life and say Christianity means you don't do this, 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 and you don't want to do these other things and you can't do that and there's no pleasure. Absolutely blown out by this. So what is the truth? Christ is here. He says, don't call unclean what I call clean. Remember that from the book of Acts? We are humans. God knows that. God has saved us and called us to love God and love each other. We can do that. We don't need to follow all the other suppositions that people have and their distrust of any joy or pleasure. In fact, Paul talks about that. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Godly doesn't mean humorless and unkind. The scripture says, in fact, in Romans 1, that you can know God by the things which he created. We serve a God that taught bees how to dance, who's an amazing artist in the sky as the sun rises and sets, whose creativity knows no bounds in the depths of the ocean, who loves color and light and flavor and taste and touch, and has surrounded us by it and made us need it. Being a person of God isn't a frowny, judgy person. Being a person of God means you bring joy and freedom and kindness and love with you. It doesn't mean you're a hedonist where you're just running around having sex with everybody and getting drunk all the time. And No, of course not. Keep your brain and engage it every so often. But know this, you don't have to worry about, oh, if I put a foot here, what is going to happen? You'll be fine. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. You'll be good. He goes here, physical training is of some value. NIV killed all my joy there because older versions would put physical training is of little value. And I would always bring that up because I, I don't go to the gym. I know it's hard to believe with a sculpted bronze godlike body, but I don't go to the gym. Uh, my exercise is walking and I don't really have a walking plan. I just end up walking a lot and I stand most of the day at my desk. <clears throat> I sit here when I'm doing these, but um, anywho, the, um, the whole idea of, of working out on purpose, it just doesn't really do much for me. And I know that's a problem with me. It's not a problem with you. If you like working out, you're actually going to be better health, better situation than I am. But I used to really love it that Paul said it's of little value. 
But the NIV is actually correct. It says it's, it, there is some value. But godliness has value for all things. So it's just a perspective thing. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So working out now will help you in the present life, but not the life to come. Godliness will help you now and later. That's all he's saying. So remember to practice godliness. He goes, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this, we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. We will likely do a series on Monday morning about um, what this passage infers and what other passages infer. And that is that more people are going to be saved than perhaps we were told. I believe God plans on saving a lot more than we ever imagined. And that makes me happy because Paul here is looking at Timothy. Uh, he's under house arrest, but let's just say through the jail bars of house arrest saying, you've got to know this. You've got to teach this. This is what you teach. This is your godliness. This is how you live your life. This is your message God, we put all our hope in him, not in our perfection, not in our whatevers, you know, don't marry, don't eat the wrong food, don't, no, we put our faith in God who has saved us, who is the savior, present tense back then. He is the savior of all people and especially those who believe. Well, how do you do all on especially? Well, please. We use these kind of sayings before. You know, I enjoyed the entire meal, especially the chocolate. Oh, that meant you hated the steak? No, no. I just said I enjoyed all the meal, but especially the chocolate. Um, did Paul just say God's going to save all people? Maybe he didn't, but it sure seems like he might have. So stay tuned on Monday mornings when we start working on that. Okay. Command and teach these things. What things? Be godly and don't go around around telling people don't do stuff. It's Paul saying it, guys, not me. And I know it's offensive to many, but I didn't write the Bible. I'm not Paul. This is what he said. It's pretty plain. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity. Just as a sidebar, I love teens. And I love young people. I don't really think it's of any benefit to us to woe and tear our hair out and, and sit in sackcloth and ashes about the teens of today and about millennials and all their problems. Just stop. You know, we all, every generation has been horrible. Every one of them has caused their parents to have ulcers and their grandparents to despair of life. It's the way it goes. And yet God has redeemed each one of them in his turn and he will continue to do so. So just don't be nice to them, would you? And, and thrill at their future, because you don't know what it's going to be. But it's going to be special, because we have our hope in God. So don't look down upon those who are young. He goes, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to, teach, to preaching and to teaching. Public reading of Scripture. We don't do that very much. In our churches, um, now, and I, what, about three years ago was the last time I was in a Catholic church, and it was in Puerto Rico. 
and half the service was reading scripture. <clears throat> that is not unusual in a Catholic service. Uh, I know a lot of Protestants out there are told that Catholics never read their Bible and, and maybe not even allowed to read their Bible. That's just not true, especially after Vatican II. It wasn't true before, but especially after Vatican II, Scripture's a big part there. And Scottish churches, like in Kirkadi and, and some of the older ones, you can go in and there'll be two pulpits uh, or two stands. There may be a third pulpit in the middle. And you read from the Old Testament, then you read from the New Testament. Uh, and you read through the whole Bible publicly. Now, we don't do that, and there are a couple reasons for that. One is that some parts of the Bible, you know, look at the first several chapters of the book of First Chronicles. Can you imagine sitting there and just listening to the list of names being mispronounced? Because they would be. It doesn't matter who reads them. Uh, I've, I find out pretty much every year that I've mispronounced a name in the Bible my entire life. So it doesn't matter. I just taught wrong. Maybe I should have asked who told me that. Anyway, uh, that's part. <clears throat> but there's another part. We're, we're not taught to read with joy. And I'm going to really try not to be on my soapbox here. I can just tell you that I have met many people and I have seen them, some in my own family, who loved to read until teachers killed it by insisting that they read this experimental you know, Japanese poem and they're going to work on that for a week. And now you have to read this bizarre, doesn't really have an ending story over here. And they weren't allowed to read interesting stuff, thrilling stuff, funny stuff, suspenseful stuff. No, they had to read something that would broaden their mind. And what happened? Re reading became equated with work and with the possibility of failure, being graded down on it, doing it wrong, and reading went out of their lives. And now on social media, we have all these vast libraries of history in front of us, and somebody writes a long-form post like Bobby Valentine, who, if you're not a friend of his on Facebook, you should be. Uh, he also has a blog, and you can find all the links from his Facebook page. The, um, he'll, he writes a long-form uh, long post on some idea of history or theology, and they are always worth reading. But you will see somebody put down TLDR, too long, didn't read. All right, a couple things. Why didn't you read it? And second, why would you admit that you decided it was too long, didn't read, without even investigating? Why would you do that? I don't get it. Anyway, therefore, reading has not been a real big part of our lives. I've seen all sorts of figures um, about how few people read a book after they leave school. I think some of those figures are actually juiced up a bit to make it look worse than it is. People do like to read some things, some people, but also we've not been taught how to read in public. I'm astounded and how boring we make the Bible sound when we read it in public. There's no emotion, there's no flavor, color. And I'm going, this is really interesting stuff here. I don't think the demons said to Jesus, oh, what have we done to you? Is it now that you've come to put some energy into that thing? Read it as if it's alive, because it is. The scripture moves. It, it does stuff to us. So we should read it with, you know, with precision and excitement. 
But what happens if you're one of those people that's been taught and beaten up that, to the point where you just don't enjoy reading? I get it. I, I just don't have a big solution here. But I find it interesting that among preaching, teaching, and reading scripture out loud, Paul puts reading scripture out loud first. What does that mean? I have no idea. I just find it interesting he went with that first. And preaching and teaching are different because preaching is to a group and teaching is to a smaller group. That's really the only difference. Um, in our modern parlance, teaching allows you to have more give and take than preaching does. But I don't really see that in the ancient languages here. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to pre um, preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the bodies of elder, body of elders laid their hands on you. Well, this was an off-scene thing. We did not get to see any of this. We don't know exactly what happened, but we can discern from this a clue that at some time that the, the elders, which back then was not necessarily an office, it was really where you were in life, uh, and you were supposed to act a certain way because you act your age, that they laid their hands on Timothy and through some prophetic message from God, informed him he had been given a gift from God to lead God's people. We can infer all of that from here without actually seeing the scene, although wouldn't you have enjoyed seeing the scene? I, I wish Luke had been there and been able to write about it. Then he goes, right, you don't neglect it. If you have a gift, use the gift. By the way, I'm going to say that to you. Remember when you used to like to draw? Draw. Remember when you used to play the guitar? Get it out of the closet. Play it. Do you remember when you used to actually like gardening? Garden. What is your gift? And what brought you joy at one time might bring other people joy now too. Do that. Use your gift. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Live your life out loud. That doesn't mean you have to you know, share every bite that you eat on Instagram. What it means is that you're, what you do, people can see what you're doing and that they can see it's good and that you're getting better. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Well, see, here sounds like a little contradiction, doesn't it? Not with the watching yourself closely, because self-discipline, self-control, all of that's been in the list we looked in in the last chapter. But it is that up here in, in verse 10, he says, God's going to save all, especially those who believe. And down here, he says, doing this, you'll save yourself and some of your hearers. Actually, in the NIV, it says, and your hearers. And some of the Older versions, it says, and perhaps some of those who hear you. So it's really according to which group of manuscripts you grab as to which reading you do. Regardless, why should he be doing things to save himself if he is saved? Well, you see, that's the weird thing, is that we can read scripture and it, it becomes as strange as physics. There are many things in physics which do not sound as if they could possibly be true, but they are there are contradictions in physics. And yet, if we try to solve one of the contradictions, it causes more. We have to embrace mystery at some level, even as we continue to study science. We, we have to embrace some mystery and humility. And the same with scripture. Salvation in scripture is an event and it's a process. I believe that I was saved 
when I was baptized. I believe that God saved me today and that he is saving me today and that he will save me and that what I do saves me. And all of this sounds contradictory unless you embrace the mystery that we are co-workers with God in this. God's made the promise. Now let's just go to work. We have to be very careful that we don't say that we're saved by our works. We also have to be very careful that we don't say because we're saved, we don't have to do anything. We are called to be an active part of this family and play our part in it and put our gifts into the mix, share our goods and share our time. Why? So that God will save us? No, because he has saved us and is saving us. I don't do what I do to make me a Christian. I do what I do because I am one. And I'm not saved because I do what I do. I do what I do because I am saved. And I will be. It's a process. Think of it this way. All right, maybe this will help. Many of you have had some trauma in your life and some uh, really horrific things. I don't want to give examples. And you read the passages about forgiveness with some trepidation because you're thinking, I, I don't know if I can forgive. I, I'm really trying to, but I'm, you know, forgiveness is an event and a process. You can say, all right, I know I have to forgive them. So they're forgiven. God, help me forgive them. And I think most of us can understand this. It's kind of like the man that said to, to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. If you don't understand what that guy was saying, you and I don't have a lot in common because I tell God all the time, I believe in you. I absolutely trust you. Would you help me believe in you now? I'm having troubles with trust. Well, isn't that contradictory? Yeah, but it's human. And it's part of the image of God that we embrace the mystery. We trust God and we go to work. Why do we go to work? Because God called us to the work. And so, yeah, wait till we do this whole series on Monday mornings with the Who Told You About. It, it's going to be a little mind-blowing, a little fun. Uh, some of you will hop on the train and some of you will hop off. But it needs to be done. Done. All right. Got a little bit of time here left. In fact, we're only just over halfway through. So let's leap into chapter five. He's talking to a young man and he says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but extort him as if he were your father. You know, it's always dangerous to do this. Um, as a minister through the last 40 years plus, while I did all sorts of other things, I, most of that time I was involved in some aspect of ministry. I remember the frustrations of having to work with people who were not going to read theology, were not going to study anything, were not going to learn anything, and were not going to change their minds, but felt that they were the ones in charge of the church, and therefore they needed to run the ministers who had studied the theology and were still learning and still growing. And the ministers get really frustrated with this. I get that. Been there. But the way you approach the problem is key. You don't rebuke them harshly. Instead, if you do that, you, you cause a break. And I'm going to give you, and this is where I was a little hesitant. 
um, at the time of this writing, she is doing uh, time of this recording, which is about two months out from when you're watching. My mother's doing great, 91 years old, and she's living her best life right now. But I am tech support for everything she owns. Who knew hearing aids, which are rechargeable, you put them in a box, they recharge, you pull them out, you put them in, fine, there's no settings, pretty much every day. Now she only lives in a, a, about a mile from me now. So I'll go over, make sure that's done. She has um, a Keurig, single serve. I don't drink coffee, but I am tech support on that. On her phone, just a flip phone, uh, tech support. About everything she owns. Is it frustrating? You know, if I'm being very honest, there are some days where I'm going, do I, do I have time for the? But I always walk in with a smile and honor my mother because she is precious. She is important to God. She is a daughter of God. And she loves me and she loves God and she loves everybody she's ever met. And that kind of person needs to be treated with gentleness, grace, and with patience abundantly. Besides, she raised me for a while. That was probably just a walk in a park and, a, and an endless joy, but it might have been difficult a day or two. So how do you approach? You be kind. And you, you who are younger out there, and by younger, I mean, I don't care if you're 50s, 40s, 30s, you're younger than me. Be patient with those who don't have the technology you have or who want you to have technology you don't have. I mean, but why don't we just not rebuke each other very much? What if we just be nice to each other? Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Whenever I work with teen boys, uh, I dearly love working with teens, boys or girls. Uh, one of the things that they sometimes ask me to talk to them about, that their leaders do, is about how they should be treating uh, the objects of their desire. So I'll talk to them. And I said, first of all, understand something. Women aren't meat. They are not prey. They are not there to be hunted. They are not there to be captured. Women are gifts from God to the universe. They are beautiful, all of them. They are wise. They are witty. They are packed, jam-packed with talents and information that we need. We should treat them as precious, valuable, wonderful beings, but not as something to be consumed and tossed away. Instead, treat all women as a daughter of God. Now, Paul puts it here, treat the older woman as your mother, the younger woman as your sister, and stay pure. And I know that's a lot to ask. Oh my, it is. There are years in that period of life where you're basically a hormone with legs. I get that. By the way, I talk to girls too. But please, I don't have to do all of it, do I? Can you just use one as an illustration? Please? All right, good. Um, we need to treat each other with full remembrance at all times that this is a person God made and God loves. And how we treat them is pretty important to God. 
I, I am, I'm a very peaceful person as a rule. I've been trained to fight. I've been trained to shoot. I've been trained all that sort of stuff. And, and used to be pretty good at all of that. Still do the shooting every now and then, but you know, at my age, I'm not going to be, you know, you yell attack. I'll probably have one, but you get the point. I'm a, I'm a pretty nice guy. But if you were to come after my daughter or come after my granddaughter or come after my wife, my personality would change. I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I'm certainly not thrilled with any aspect of violence and don't want any aspect of violence to ever visit upon you or upon me. So I'm not walking around looking for a chance here uh, at all. But I am saying my personality would change because you'd gone too far. You'd co you've come after my precious one. You, the same with my son. He's 6'5", was in the Marines. He doesn't need me to protect him, but if somebody came after him verbally or physically, it would be a hard day for me and for them because I would insinuate myself into the middle even if it was stupid to do so. And I know that. And I don't have too high an opinion of myself to think I'd always be controlled. But I think most of you can understand this. So, how should we treat God's son and God's daughter? I think we should be pretty careful about that. And we should teach our children to be careful about that. Because don't play into the myth that childhood is an innocent time. Nobody's meaner than a middle school kid if they've not been taught to not join in the crowd and the judgments of the crowd, but to teach rather to treat others the way God wants us to treat them. All right, I've been on a soapbox for a while, but so is Paul, and he's not done. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. We have an obligation. We have an obligation to our older members of our family. Now, I'm aware that some of them were horrible. Some of them mistreated you. They may have sexually abused you. They may have beaten you. They may have verbally beaten you down. I get all of that. And I'm aware that then you may not be able to be in close proximity to them because they haven't gotten any sweeter with age and your wounds are still tender. But we can still honor them and ar arrange for treatment at a distance. We can arrange for what help we can do. Do the best you can. That's all. Just do what you can do. And God, God understands the rest. God is far less judgmental on us than the devil tells us that he is. But again, Timothy is going to have to handle a situation in the early church. The Jewish widows were taken care of because there was a certain amount that each Jewish family laid aside so that the widows would be cared for. The Gentile believers coming in did not have that system. And some of them were widows and they needed to be taken care of, and yet nobody had ever invested for them. So do we take money that was in the Jewish fund and take it over here? I mean, how do... So this was a real divisive, difficult, emotion-filled argument. And so that's why Paul's spending time here. He's saying if she has grandchildren and children, teach them to put the religion into practice and take care of this woman. My job is to take care of my mother and my wife, and you, my job is to take care of others. 
I, I do get wonderful, sweet, low things that will say, Patrick, you know, you need to take care of yourself. You know, I find that I do get enough time usually to rest or to think about other things. And I have friends that make sure that, hey, Patrick, let's get you out on the golf course. Or Patrick, here, let's let you and Cammie go to the mountains for a few days or down to the water for a few days. So I'm, I'm doing okay. All right. No worries about that. But our life is to be in service, is to be giving. The widow who is really in need, we're told, uh, and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even when she lives. All right, people, this is just going to be hard. And it's not something that it was not phrased the way we would phrase it because we're not in this world. There were some that were widowed, but they had money and they were living it out and evidently in riotous living, uh, drunkenness, carousing and the like. That was pretty common in Paul's day for women who were left with money and didn't need to then marry or have any other form of security. Uh, give the, the people these instructions to so that no one may be open to blame. So just you know, control yourself, widows, or kids, take care of the widows. He's just trying to arrange and saying, basically, let's all get along. Don't make God stop this car. And then he says this, you ready? If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Far too many preachers have kids that are, are, are not supported. Dad didn't go to their games. Dad didn't sit and work with their homework. Dad didn't throw the ball with them. Dad didn't sit around and draw or make up funny stories or play instruments with them. Well, why? Because he was busy doing the Lord's work. It's a shame. It's wrong. And if any church leadership wants to shame their minister away from his family to his duties... That leadership is, is racked with sin. We save our families first. And again, if your family's already shattered and broken to the winds, God understands that. So who's your family now? You know, the, our Ashsi family is just continuing to grow. And I, I truly believe they're my family. When I walk into one of their house churches, no matter what state I'm in, haven't gotten to the other countries yet, um, I get hugs. And there are tears of joy, and I feel right at home, because I am. And you're at home every time you come to the soundstage. That's something which everybody who's ever made it to our soundstage has said repeatedly, and that is, you know, you wonder if here is really as sweet and wonderful as it looks, and it is. Yeah, you will be loved. You will, you will have instant friends and family. But be careful that you're not one of those people that doesn't take care of your family. You need to work as much as you can. You need to save when you can. You need to listen as you can. You need to speak as you can. Play, do whatever it takes. You need to care for your family. And your family may care for you back and they may not, but you do your job. God really is not anti-family. Evidently he's not, hey, don't ever get married like some of the people earlier in chapter four were saying, no, he, um, he loves families. He says, now take care of yours. 
but what if my mama needs, you know, new hearing aids, but it's not really critical. And I'd kind of like to have a ski trip instead. Patrick's never skied in his life. This is an illustration. You know, you can find a way to justify doing whatever you want to do. You can. Doesn't mean it's real and doesn't mean it's right. Care for your family. Care for each other. And I care for you. So I'm going to let you go. It's been 32 minutes. Thank you. God bless you. Look forward to talking to you next week as we continue. And a really interesting and somewhat uncomfortable chapter. First Timothy 5. Cheers.